0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Jodi Pico. This program originally aired in 2010. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, a conversation with Jodi Pico, live from the Writers on a New England Stage series. The prolific novelist's 17th book, House Rules, recently debuted at the number one spot on the New York Times bestsellers list for hardcover fiction. I spoke to her about her work and her life as a mother of 3 here in Hanover, New Hampshire. But first, here's Jody Pico reading from her book, House Rules at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The house band Dreadnought started things off.
1: I am trying really hard not to sing right now. I'm not used to being backed by a band. Um, It is so nice to be here. I have been on a massive book tour. I've been in about 35 cities, and I have been waiting for a long time to say, it is so nice to be in New Hampshire again. (laughs) There's not a lot that you need to know about House Rules in Advance. It is the story of an 18-year-old named Jacob Hunt, and Jacob Hunt has Asperger's syndrome. If you don't know a lot about Asperger's syndrome, I promise you will by the time you finish the book. Um, Asperger's is on the high-functioning end of the autism spectrum. And like other kids with Asperger's, Jacob is very, very smart. He is obsessed with one particular topic. He has trouble with theory of mind, meaning he can't really put himself in someone else's shoes. He won't understand social cues at all. And he is painfully literal. If you said to him, Jacob, take a seat, he'd walk over there and pick one up and hand it to you. Jacob's passion is for crime scene analysis and forensics, which is great until he winds up being accused of a crime himself. And I wrote this book for many reasons. One is that the legal system in America tends to work very, very well if you communicate a certain way. But if you don't, it just goes to hell in a handbasket very, very quickly. And when you think about some of the hallmark behaviors of autism, like not looking someone in the eye or developing some kind of nervous stimulatory behavior or having a very flat affect or an inappropriate affect with your voice, to a cop who doesn't know any better, that's going to look an awful lot like guilt. And that's the situation that Jacob finds himself in. A lot of people have been asking me, well, why autism? Why now? Well, for two reasons. The first is that, like many people, I've had autism touch my family personally. I have a cousin, whose name is David, who was diagnosed when he was very, very tiny. And over the course of his childhood, my aunt would find herself in situations where David was having a meltdown, and many times when she was trying to restrain him in some way, she would have the cops called on her, or she would be told by store owners that she was being abusive, which a lot of parents of autistic kids have to deal with well david's now thirty years old and he lives in a group home and he weighs about two hundred and fifty pounds and is over six feet tall and when when uh... david has a meltdown it's a little different now and he has put his hand through a plate glass wall and through a plaster wall when that happens the owner of the group home has to call the police so that she can file an insurance report And as you can imagine, David can't really tell anyone why he was frustrated, and the police sure don't know how to ask him the right questions, and everything begins to break down. The other reason that I wrote about this now is because one in 100 kids is diagnosed somewhere on the spectrum. And a lot of reporters have said that I tend to write about ordinary families in extraordinary situations This is a little different, because I'm writing about an ordinary family that is like a lot of ordinary families in America today. And I bet if you raised your hand now, because you either have a child with autism or you know a child with autism, most of the audience would be raising its hand. What I'm going to do now is read to you guys for a little while. Like many of my books, this one is told by multiple narrative voices. You're going to be hearing from Emma, who is Jacob's mom. You're going to hear from Jacob himself. You're going to hear from Rich, a local detective. And I'll let you know when I'm switching. So to begin with, this is Emma. Everywhere I look, there are signs of a struggle. The mail has been scattered all over the kitchen floor. The stools are overturned. There's one single faint footprint from a van sneaker at the threshold of the living room, pointing toward the dead body of my son, Jacob. He sprawled like a starfish in front of the fireplace. Blood covers his temple and his hands. For a moment, I can't move. I can't breathe. Suddenly, he sits up. Mom, Jacob says, you are not even trying. This isn't real, I remind myself. Ugh, there was a fight, I say. And you were hit in the head? I notice the crystal clock that usually sits on the mantel, peeking out from beneath the couch. I gingerly pick it up and see blood on the corner with my pinky. I touch the liquid and then taste it. Jacob, don't tell me you used up all my corn syrup again. Jacob sits up and sighs. There was a confrontation in the kitchen, he explains. It ended with me being chased into the living room where Theo clocked me. (laughs) At that, I have to smile a little. Just so you know, that means to punch someone, not hit them with an actual clock. Suddenly, Theo thunders down the stairs. "'Where is the freak?' he yells. "'Theo, you will not call your brother. How about I stop calling him a freak when he stops stealing things out of my room?' I've instinctively stepped between him and his brother. "'I didn't steal anything from your room,' Jacob says. "'Oh, really? What about my sneakers?' "'They were in the mudroom.' Retard, Theo says under his breath, and I see a flash of fire in Jacob's eyes. I am not retarded, he lunges for his brother. I hold him off with an outstretched arm. Jacob, you shouldn't take anything that belongs to Theo without asking for his permission. And Theo, I don't want to hear that word come out of your mouth again, or I'm going to take your sneakers and throw them out with the trash. Do I make myself clear? I am out of here, Theo mutters. A moment later, I hear the door slam. I have met so many parents of kids who are on the low end of the autism spectrum, kids who are diametrically opposed to Jacob with his Asperger's. They tell me I'm lucky to have a son who's so verbal, who's blisteringly intelligent, who can take apart the broken microwave and have it working again an hour later. They think there's no greater hell than having a son locked in his own world, unaware that there's a wider one to explore. But try having a son who's locked in his own world and wants to make a connection. A son who tries to be like everyone else, but truly doesn't know how. You missed a fingerprint, too, Jacob says cheerfully. No offense, Mom, but you'd make a lousy crime scene investigator. You never did tell me Theo's motive for killing you. Oh, Jacob glances over his shoulder, a wicked grin spreading across his face. I stole his sneakers. In my mind, Asperger's is a label to describe not the traits Jacob has, but rather the ones he lost. It was sometime around two years old when he began to drop words, to stop making eye contact, to avoid connections with people. He couldn't hear us, or he didn't want to. One day I looked at him lying on the floor beside a Tonka truck. He was spinning its wheels, his face inches away, and I thought, where have you gone? I made excuses for his behavior. The reason he huddled in the bottom of the grocery cart every time we went shopping was that it was cold in the supermarket. The tags I had to cut out of his clothing were unusually scratchy. There's a lot of fuss about whether or not Asperger's is on the autism spectrum, but to be honest, it doesn't matter. It's a term we use to get Jacob the accommodations he needs in school, not a label to explain who he is. If you met him now, the first thing you'd notice is that he might have forgotten to change his shirt from yesterday or brush his hair. He won't look you in the eye. And if you pause to speak to someone else for a brief moment, you might turn back to find that Jacob has left the room. Saturdays, Jacob and I go food shopping. It's part of his routine, which means we rarely stray from it. I knew he'd have his faux crime scene completely cleaned up before 11 o'clock, because that's when the free sample lady sets up her table in the front of the Townsend Food Co-op. But today, the spot that she usually occupies is empty. Jacob's hand begins to flap against his leg. When a low growl rips through his throat, I know we're past the point of no return. He backs away from me, into a shelf full of pickle jars. A few bottles fall to the floor, and the breaking glass sends him over the edge. Suddenly, Jacob is screaming. He moves blindly, striking out at me when I reach for him. It's only 30 seconds, but 30 seconds can last forever when you're the center of everyone's scrutiny, when you're wrestling your six-foot-tall son down to the floor and pinning him with your full body weight, the only kind of pressure that can soothe him. A crowd is gathered around us. He's autistic, I snap. You have any questions? I've found that anger works best. It's the electric shock they need to tear their gaze away from the train wreck. Jacob shuffles along behind me as I push the cart. His hand is still twitching faintly at his side, but he's holding it together. My biggest hope for Jacob is that moments like this won't happen. My biggest fear, that they will. And I won't always be there to keep people from thinking the worst. This is Jacob. I may be autistic, but I can't tell you what day of the week your mother's 32nd birthday fell on. I can't do logarithms in my head. On the other hand, I could tell you anything you ever wanted to know about lightning, famous movie quotes, and lower Cretaceous sauropods. I memorized the periodic table without trying, I taught myself how to read Middle Egyptian, and I helped my calculus teacher fix his computer. I could talk forever about friction-ridge detail and fingerprint analysis, and whether said analysis is an art or a science." I suppose these talents would make me a hit at a cocktail party if A, I drank, which I don't, or B, I had any friends to invite me to a party, cocktail or not. My mother has explained it to me this way. Imagine what it's like to have someone with an intense stare come up to you and start talking about medium-velocity impact blood spatter patterns. Then again, imagine being the person talking and not getting the hint when the victim of your conversation is desperately trying to escape. I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome long before it became the mental health disorder du jour, overused by parents to describe their bratty kids, so people think they're super geniuses instead of simply antisocial. To be honest, most kids in my school know what Asperger's is now, thanks to a candidate on America's Next Top Model. As for myself, I try not to say the word out loud, Asperger's. I mean, doesn't it sound like a grade Z cut of meat? I live with my mother and my brother, Theo. The fact that we emerge from the same gene pool is mind-boggling to me because we could not be more different. Theo is always caught up in what people think of him while I already know what people think of me, that I'm the weird kid who stands too close and doesn't shut up. Theo listens to rap, which gives me a headache. He skateboards as if the wheels are attached to his feet, and I mean that as a compliment since I can barely walk and chew gum. He puts up with a lot, I suppose, I get upset if plans don't work out or if something in my schedule changes and sometimes I just can't control what happens. I go all hulk, screaming, swearing, hitting things. I haven't ever hit Theo, but I've wrecked some of his things, most notably a guitar that my mother then made me pay for in increments. Theo is also the one who suffers the brunt of my honesty. Case in point number one. Theo walks into the kitchen wearing jeans so low that his underwear is showing, an oversized sweatshirt and a medal around his neck. Theo, sup, me, yo, homie, maybe you didn't get the memo, but we live in suburbia, not the hood. (laughs) I tell my mother we have nothing in common, but my mother insists that will change. I think she's crazy. I treat school like an anthropological study. I tried to cultivate an interest in topics that normal kids talked about, but it was so boring. Case in point number two, girl, hey, Jacob, isn't this the coolest MP3 player? Me, It was probably made by Chinese kids. Girl, you want to sip in my slushie? Me, sharing drinks can give you mono-soaking kissing. Girl, I'm going to go sit somewhere else. Can you blame me for trying to jazz up conversations with my peers a little by talking about topics like Dr. Henry Lee's take on the Lacey Peterson murder? Eventually, I gave up. Following a discussion about who was going out with whom was as hard for me as cataloging the mating rituals of a nomadic tribe in Papua New Guinea. My mother says I don't even try. I say I try all the time. There are some things I really can't stand. One, the sound of paper being crumpled. It makes me feel like someone's doing that to my organs. Two, too much noise or flashing lights. Three, having plans change. Four, Missing Crime Busters, which is on the USA Network at 4.30 every day, thanks to the wonders of syndication. Even though I know all 114 of the episodes by heart, watching them daily is as important to me as taking insulin would be to a diabetic. Five, when my mother puts my clothes away, I keep them in rainbow order, Roy G. Biv, and the colors can't touch. She does her best, but the last time, she completely forgot about indigo. Six, If someone else takes a bite of my food, I have to cut off the part his saliva touched before I can eat any more of it. Seven, loose hair. It freaks me out. Eight, being touched by someone I don't know. Nine, food with membranes like custards or foods that explode in your mouth like peas. Ten, even numbers. Eleven, when people call me retarded, which I am not. Twelve. The color orange, it means danger, and there's no rhyme for it in English, which makes it suspicious. <laughs> I have spent much of my 18 years learning how to exist in a world that is occasionally orange, chaotic, and too loud. In between classes, for example, I wear headphones. I used to wear this great pair that made me look like an air traffic controller, but Theo said everyone made fun of me when they saw me in the hall, so my mother convinced me to use earbuds instead. I hardly ever go to the cafeteria because there's no one for me to sit with, and all those conversations crossing each other feel like knives on my skin. Instead, I hang out in the teacher's room where, if I happen to mention that Pythagoras did not really discover the Pythagorean theorem, they don't look at me like I've grown a second head. When I get upset, I repeat words from movie scripts and talk in a flat voice. I close my eyes and ask myself, what would Dr. Henry Lee do? My psychiatrist, Dr. Moon Morano, often asks me to rate anxiety-producing situations on a scale of 1 to 10. Today is a 1, thanks to the absence of the free sample lady at the grocery store. I've been in my room since we got home. Hey, my mother says, poking her head in. How you doing? Okay. She sits down beside me on the bed. So, Jacob, she says, I just want to point out that you did, in fact, survive without the free food sample. It's times like this I'm glad I don't look people in the eye. If I did, surely they would die on the spot from the contempt coming out of mine. Teachable moment, my mother explains. Just saying. Frankly, my dear, I tell her, I don't give a damn. My mother sighs. Dinner at six, Rhett, she says, even though it's always at six, and even though my name is Jacob. For my birthday last year, my mother bought me the most incredible gift ever, a police scanner radio. Since Thanksgiving alone, I've gone to two crime scenes. The first was a break-in at a jewelry store. The second crime scene was not really a crime scene. It was the house of a kid who goes to my school, who's a real jerk to me. His mother had called 911, but by the time they got there, she was standing at the front door, her nose still bleeding, saying that she didn't want to press charges against her husband. Tonight, I've just gotten into my pajamas when I hear a code on the scanner. 10100, which means dead body. I don't think I've ever gotten dressed so fast in my life. I grab a composition notebook and scrawl down the address that keeps getting mentioned on the scanner. Then I tiptoe downstairs. With any luck, my mother's already asleep and won't even know I'm gone. It's bitterly cold out, and there are about two inches of snow on the ground. I'm so excited about the crime scene, I'm wearing sneakers instead of boots. The wheels of my mountain bike skid every time I go around to turn. The address is a state highway, and I know I've reached the right spot because there are four police cars with their flashing blues on. An abandoned car, a Pontiac, sits on the side of the road covered in ice and snow. I take out my notebook and write, vehicle has been abandoned for at least 12 hours pre-storm. I duck into the edge of the woods as another police car arrives. This one is unmarked and ordinary except for the domed police light magnetically affixed to the top. The man who gets out of it is tall and has red hair. He's wearing a black overcoat and heavy boots. On one of his hands, he has a Dora the Explorer band aid. I write this in my notebook, too. Captain, an officer says, coming out from between the trees. Sorry to call you in. The captain shakes his head. What do you got? A jogger found a body in the woods. The guy's half naked, and there's blood all over him. I follow them into the woods, careful to stay in the shadows the dead man is lying on his back. His eyes are open. His pants are gathered around his ankles, but he's still wearing his underwear. The knuckles of his hands are bright red with blood, as are his palms, knees, and calves. His jacket is unzipped, and he's missing one shoe and one sock. All around him, the snow is pink. Holy crap, the captain says. He kneels down and snaps on a pair of rubber gloves. I hear two more sets of footprints, and another man comes into the pool of light. Hey, chief, the captain says. Suicide or homicide? I don't know yet. Sexual assault seems like a given, though. I looked down at the list in my notebook. What would Dr. Henry Lee do? Well, he'd analyze why there was only superficial blood, that pink transfer on the snow without any dripping or spatter. He'd note the footprints in the snow. He'd ask why, after a sexual assault, the victim would still be wearing his underwear if other items of clothing were removed. I am so cold, I'm shaking. I stomp my frozen feet in their sneakers. Then I look down at the ground, and suddenly everything is crystal clear. Actually, I say, stepping out of my hiding place, you're both wrong. This is Rich. Who the hell are you? The chief asks. It's really very simple, the boy continues, staring at the body. On episode 26 of season 2, the whole Crime Busters team got hauled up to Mount Washington to investigate a naked guy who was found at the summit. No one could figure out what a naked guy was doing on top of a mountain, but it turned out to be hypothermia. The same thing happened to this man. He became disoriented and fell down. As his core body temperature rose, he took off his own clothes because he felt hot, but in reality, that's what made him freeze to death. He grins can't believe you guys didn't know that (laughs) the chief narrows his eyes what's your name jacob well people who freeze to death don't usually bleed all over the place he didn't bleed all over the place jacob says blood spatter would show up in the snow look at the wounds he fell down and scraped himself up the blood on the snow came from crawling around before he lost consciousness i look at jacob carefully one major flaw with his theory, of course, is that you don't spontaneously start bleeding when you crawl around on the snow. If that were the case, there'd be hundreds of schoolchildren exsanguinating at recess during winter in Vermont. There's just something the tiniest bit off about him. His voice is too flat and high. He won't make eye contact. He's bouncing on the balls of his feet, and I don't even think he realizes it. On the spot where he's been bouncing, the snow has melted, revealing a patch of briars... I kick at the ground beneath my boots and shake my head. That poor, drunk, dead bastard had the misfortune to fall down in a field of brambles. Before I can say anything else, Wayne Nussbaum, the regional medical examiner, arrives. Greetings all. I hear you have a murder mystery on your hands. You you think maybe it could be hypothermia? I ask. He considers this, carefully rolling the victim forward. I've never seen it firsthand, but it certainly would fit the bill. Wayne glances up at me. Nice work, but you didn't need to pull me away from the Bruins in overtime for death by natural causes. I glance at the spot where Jacob was standing, but he has disappeared. And finally, this is Jacob. I pedal home as fast as I can. I can't wait to transcribe my notes from the crime scene into a fresh notebook. I plan to draw pictures using colored pencils and scaled maps. I slip into the house through the garage, and I'm just taking off my boots when the door opens behind me again. Immediately I freeze. It's my brother, Theo. What if he asks me what I've been doing? I've never been a very good liar. If he asks, I'm going to have to tell him about the scanner and the dead body and the hypothermia, and that makes me angry because right now I want to keep it all to myself instead of sharing it. I tuck my notebook into my pants and pull my sweater down over it. What, now you're going to spy on me, Theo says, kicking off his boots? Why don't you get a life? It isn't until he's halfway up the stairs that I look at him and see how red his cheeks are, how his hair is windblown. I wonder where he's been, and if mom knows. And then the thought is gone, replaced by the vision of the dead man's bare skin and the pink stained snow. I'm still humming under my breath when I get to my room. I take off my clothes and put on my pajamas, then I sit down at my desk. Go figure. On a scale of 1 to 10, this day turned out to be an 11. Thank you.
0: We're back with word of mouth and a conversation with best-selling author Jodi Pico. Her novels have sold more than 35 million copies around the world. Several of her books have debuted as number one sellers. I included questions from some of her ardent fans known as the P-Cult when I interviewed Jodi Pico last week at the Music Hall in Portsmouth as part of the Writers on a New England Stage series. Before the break, we heard her read in the voices of some of the characters from her current novel, House Rules. Jodi Pico is known for featuring multiple narrators in her books, all of them revealing their individual histories and joys and resentments and secret motivations. I asked her how she wrote from inside the head of a teenage boy with Asperger's syndrome.
1: I have to say, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. He is one of my all-time favorite narrators to write. He was great fun. Um, And I I knew that I was going to have to interview kids with Asperger's. I actually always do a ton of research, and the research for this book began outside of Pittsburgh at a school for children with autism, where um, someone had arranged for me to interview six teens who have Asperger's individually and then to meet with their parents individually. And... um, I knew it was not going to be easy because one of the hallmark behaviors of Asperger's means they can't really do this, they can't sit down and have a conversation very easily. But the reason I needed that experience was so I could then write somebody like Rich who comes into contact with Jacob and doesn't quite know what to make of him. After I finished those interviews, I went back home and I, uh, through the Autism Association of New England, which was incredibly helpful, I wound up connecting with about 35 more teens who have Asperger's and their parents. And I sent out a very detailed questionnaire. And um, I mean, there were probably about 30 or 40 questions on it. And the thing about kids with Asperger's is that what they can't always tell you face-to-face because that social drama gets in the way, they're really smart, and they can put their feelings down on paper. Some of them are brilliant writers, and they're very funny on paper, and, and they are very well aware of what their condition's like and how it's impacted them. So I literally wound up with hundreds of pages of research that came from the hearts and the mouths of these parents and their kids who individually answered the questionnaires. Many of the examples that I use in this book came from their lives. They were gracious enough to share them with me. So, for example, there was the boy who was told by his parents that uh, he was moving to Vermont, he was going to love it because there were all these open spaces and rolling hills, and he freaked out thinking, Well, they're going to hurt me, right? Or the mom who, after years of never really knowing if her son um, was going, really you know had any feelings for her, because he never came out and said it. She finally said one day, you know what? Just once, just once, I'd like it if you bought me a Mother's Day card. And she forgot about it. And a month later, he showed up on Mother's Day and he handed her a card, not signed, not in an envelope, just a Mother's Day card. <laughs> And, uh, you know, those kinds of things um, all came from the kids that I had interviewed and their parents.
0: Well, you you are known for doing prodigious research (laughs) on the things. In fact, a lot of people said, have you ever been a firefighter or a lawyer or a doctor? That was a (laughs) question from a lot of members of the audience. But have you ever felt like you just got it wrong?
1: If I had gotten it wrong, it would never have made it to print. I'm pretty good not just about doing the research, but then making sure those experts that I spend time with to learn about firefighting or death row or anything else that I'm, I don't know anything about, um, they go back like this girl jested, and, uh, and they wind up um, rereading it for accuracy and marking it up with a red pen, and then I make corrections based on what they've said.
0: There are some people who I've had conversations with actually since we announced that we were doing this who thought you got Jacob wrong. You know, some people Mm -hmm. who have children with Asperger's Mm -hmm. or have Asperger's themselves who are concerned about the portrayal of Jacob Hunt as not having empathy.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you you just have to accept that you're not going to please everybody? You know, here's the thing. Jacob is a compilation of a lot of real kids. And every kid with Asperger's is different. So there's certainly going to be parents who say Jacob is not my kid. But for every person who has said that, I've had about 100 fan letters saying, have you been hiding in my closet? This is what my life is like. Which is really, you know, that is nice. Um, No, Jacob isn't going to look like every kid with Asperger's because every kid with Asperger's does look different. And um, the reactions of the mother to this particular child are going to be different than maybe they've had too. What I will say is that I stand by him. And, you know, I don't think he's too autistic I don't think he is an unrealistic character. I think he sounds very much and acts very much like a lot of the kids that I met, and that I think a lot of mothers um, recognize as well.
0: I should say for the record that we did also get a number of people tell us that they thought it was a very accurate portrayal and really appreciated it. But you've attended an autopsy for research for this book. That was fun. Tell us about some of the other things that you've done to
1: research that might surprise us or have surprised you. Probably the coolest research that I ever did was Four Second Glance when mm-hmm. I got to go ghost hunting. That's one of my favorite books. Let's well, go thank with that you. One. You have good taste. It's my favorite, too. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that was great because I was, I was doing it at a time in my life when my oldest son was terrified of ghosts. And, you know, here I am going, honey, there's no such thing as ghosts. And then going off and going ghost hunting. And uh, I was down in, in Rhode Island... Um, with this group, uh, TAPS, which is the Atlantic Paranormal Society. Uh, the guys I went out with actually now have a TV show on the Sci-Fi Channel, which some of you may have seen, Ghost Hunters. Um, but they, uh, back when I knew them, they were only Roto-Rooter plumbers who were doing this in their <laughs> spare time. And, uh, and they took me out and they told me that um, why some people become ghosts and others do not. Dying is like getting on a bus. You're supposed to go to the end of the line and go on to whatever comes next, but sometimes, You get to a rest stop, and people get off to use the bathroom, and when they come back, the bus is gone, and that's a ghost. And... um (laughs) What could make you get off the bus could be anything from, you know, a love affair you need to finish or a revenge scheme you want to carry out or the fact that you forgot to pay your MasterCard bill, anything that's holding you here. And uh, they wound up taking me to an abandoned mental institution called the Ladd Center, which was closed in the 1970s in Providence because people were dying in their care. And it's January. It's freezing cold out. Um, they tell me to park facing backwards because when you are ghost hunting, you're usually also trespassing. And... uh And so we walk up to one of these buildings that has, you know, boarded up slats and stuff. And there's no electricity going to the buildings. And when we peek inside, there are these things that look like fireflies. And, of course, there are no fireflies in New England in January. One of the guys takes a digital camera, and that firefly turns into what he would call a globule, a big ball of light or energy trying to take form as a ghost. And, you know, I'm not buying it. So they take me to another area where um, buildings burn down with people in them. And all the hair stands up on the back of my neck. And, uh, and before I can even say anything, this other guy takes his camera and takes a picture behind us. Well, when we looked behind us, it was as black as that curtain. But in the viewfinder of the digital camera was this white, misty thing. And I said, maybe you guys have a point. And, uh, and from there, they took me over the border into Massachusetts to Taunton to a family that had been hearing moans and groans up in their attic. And we went upstairs. They gave me the key to the attic, which was the little rounded padlock. We go upstairs, and they set up a video camera, which you see in second glance, and you see on TV. These guys set up a video camera to run for hours, and then they go over it to see if there's anything that could be considered paranormal. So I'm the last one down um, from the attic, and I turn off the lights, and I lock it. The ghost hunters go down to the first level of the house to talk to the um, owners. I stopped off on the second floor because the family had two children who were six months and 22 months old. They were fast asleep in separate cribs, in separate rooms. There were no toys or books or clothes on the floor, which, you know, is really kind of supernatural. And, um, <laughs> and they, uh, But they were fine. And... Uh, then I went downstairs, and the, uh, the family's telling me how they have come home to find every faucet in the house running. They've come home to find all the cereal spilled out of the kitchen cabinets into a big pile in the middle of the floor. One night, they heard calliope music at 2 in the morning, and they traced it to the attic stairs where a child's toy piano was playing without batteries. And then I said, I'm going to go check on your kids. And uh, I went into the first room, and when there was there was nothing on the floor 10 minutes ago, there were now six pennies. And they were all dated between 1968 and 1973. So I picked them up, and I put them in my pocket. Went into the next kid's room, same thing, where there had been nothing on the floor, there were six pennies lining the edge of the crib, all dated between 68 and 73. And finally, I went upstairs, took the key out of my pocket, opened the door to the attic, and under the video camera tripod were you know, 15 more pennies if someone had just gone like that under the tripod, all dated between 68 and 73. And when I got home that weekend, my husband asked if I had seen Casper. And I told him I had not. But I can tell you that if you look now in your purse, you have a hard time finding even one of those coins, because they're mostly out of circulation. And, uh, you know, I I really left there feeling like there might be a little more to this world than I thought. And I know that the guys went back two more times, decided that there was something paranormal in the house, did some historical research, and found out that two people had died there between 1968 and 1973. Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) So that was the best research ever. (laughs)
0: Well, I want to ask a little about that because I felt like the voice was a bit of a departure from your other books. There was a kind of a surreal aspect to it. Mm. It reminded me of Alice Hoffman, who I know that you really love <gasps> Such as a writer. a
1: compliment. Thank you. It was. There was definitely a tribute to Alice in there, because there's a lot of magical realism in that town. Well, I wonder about that. Yeah. I wonder if that's something that, you know, especially in
0: light of the whole Twilight phenomenon, you might explore that a little more in your future novels.
1: I never say never. Um, you know, I don't think you're going to see a vampire anytime soon in any of my books, though. I, I think she's cornered the market. <laughs> well, a New York Times magazine profile
0: last summer said your work belongs to this fiction genre of literature of children in peril. (laughs) You have written about, you know, bullying at school, school shootings, date rapes, bulimia, Mm -hmm. cutting, teen suicide. What is it that draws you to these nightmarish scenarios for parents? Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, actually, I have to say, the New York Times piece totally cracked me up because... (laughs) In the name of full disclosure, what the reporter forgot to tell people was that she was pregnant with her first child. Oh, and you were pregnant with your first child when you wrote your first book. Right. So she's writing this article, and she comes in to interview me in Boston, and every question is about all the bad things that can happen to your kid. And aren't you terrified? How do you let them out of your house? And I kept going, it's okay. They're (laughs) going to be fine. You know, it was a very bizarre piece, I think. Um, Because not all of my books, I think, have children in peril, but... If you actually look at the chronology of my books, I started writing about a mother-daughter relationship, but I was closer in age to the daughter than the mom. And then I started writing about what a marriage is and what a relationship's like. And then I wrote about being a young mother and trying to deal with having a baby when you don't get the Gerber baby. And then, you know, I I continued to sort of explore that as my kids got older, so did the problems the kids in my book faced. And I always joke around and tell my mom that she better watch out when I write about putting your parents in a nursing home, because that must be coming.
0: (laughs) Are you working something out? Is this a way of sort of playing out a drama in
1: your novels instead of your life? I certainly hope so. You know, there, is, there definitely is a superstition element, which is ridiculous. I, I'm logical enough to know it doesn't work that way. But, you know, you sit there and you go, ooh, great, wrote the teen suicide book. That's not going to happen. You know, and you kind of hope that, that it's sort of some kind of amulet that protects you and your family. And, yeah. of course, it doesn't work that way, but I can continue to deceive myself.
0: But then how <laughs> do you transition from that? I mean, you must spend all day, like, writing about... Teen suicide, and then oh, I've got to go help my kid do their homework. How do yeah, you slip in and out of those worlds?
1: The way I slip in and out is very easy because I have a you know disgustingly happy family, a fantastic <laughs> husband, and I'm not just saying that because he's in the front row. And you know, I mean, really, I have great kids; they're healthy. You know, I have everything that anyone would ever want, and so for me to be able to draw a distinction between these families in crisis I'm writing about and the life I'm living is really not hard. Um, If anything, it's harder to go back up to the office and Mm -hmm. deal with all of them than it is to come downstairs.
0: Well, you do, you pick up a lot of contemporary headlines, like some of the ones that we mentioned, you know, Columbine, sexual abuse, homosexuality next, I think, or gender rights. Why is it, do you think, that your novels can appeal to such a broad spectrum of people when right now we're living in a country that has difficulty talking about social issues civilly with each other?
1: Um, I think it's because I work very hard not to preach to you. And one of my favorite compliments came from a man who had read My Sister's Keeper six times and came up to me and said, I keep reading this book but I don't know how you feel about stem cell research. And, you know, I'm happy to tell him, I'm happy to tell anyone my personal opinion, but I really do think that my opinion is no greater than yours. And um, it's not my job to change someone's mind, but it is my job to make you ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? Where did that one come from? Because many of us form opinions without really thinking about why and without ever listening to the other side's argument. And so... No matter how hard it is for me, I will always present the other side's argument in a book so that you as the reader can sift through them both and then come, hopefully, to some kind of common, logical judgment. Maybe it'll change your mind, maybe it won't, but it certainly will make you start a discussion. And, you know, honestly, if I can talk about next year's book a little bit. That's really why I was writing that book. Tell us about um, it. It's very exciting. It's called uh, It's called Sing You Home, and uh, it is about embryo donation and gay rights in this country. And to be totally honest, I, I'm a little stunned that it hasn't really been done yet by an author because it so desperately needs to be. And um, for me, it's a very unique book in a lot of ways. I think that um, when we talk about gay rights, the people who tend to oppose it the most are the ones who can't really hear the voices of people who are living the struggle and who think that that gay rights is a political issue instead of a personal one. So as a writer, I wanted the reader to really be able to hear the voice of a character. And the main character in this book is Zoe. Zoe is a musician and a music therapist. And it wasn't enough to me to just write a first person narrative. I really wanted you to hear a voice. So, um, one of my best friends, Ellen Wilbur, and I sat down and wrote 10 original songs. She wrote the music, and I wrote the lyrics. And she has very graciously volunteered to be Zoe's voice in this book. So the book will be packaged with a CD of original songs. The track title of each song is the chapter that it corresponds to. So what you hear is Zoe working through what she's feeling in each of these songs. It is a very unique reading experience. The songs are awesome, I have to say. And it also means that next year, I'm excited because when I go on book tour, I get to tour with Ellen and have her sing in addition to having me read. Wow. So it's going to be great. How
0: would you start a story about your life?
1: <laughs> um, it was a dark and stormy <laughs> night. Uh, <laughs> actually, it wasn't. I was born in May. Probably the story would have to start with um, something my mom always told me, which was that I was the smallest baby on record at the hospital who hadn't been a preemie, and so they had to short sheet my bassinet so I wouldn't slide down too far. I don't know why, but I just think that's really funny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Since you write about a lot of contemporary issues, what do you think it will be like to read those books in 20 or 30
1: years? God, I hope people are still reading them in 20 (laughs) or 30 years. I actually just met someone on tour who came up to me and said, I'm teaching Jodi Pico 101 at a college in Denver. I said, really? That's so cool. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I would like to think they'd stick around if only because, you know, again, they start conversations One of the things I like is that um, I know that my reader base is very diverse and covers not just women but men. Um, I I know that's one of your questions. It is one of my questions. What is it about your writing that has not crossed the gender boundary? But see, you're wrong. It has because I got so tired of being called a woman's author Mm. that I decided to track the 200 emails that I get daily. Uh 49% of them come from men, so ha. (laughs) Ha. Now, this is the truth. It, probably in the audience, there are more women than men, and that's because I think women need a night out. That's what I've learned. But, <laughs> but, uh, but the other thing that happens with my books is that teenagers have started reading them, and I love that. They're very a very different kind of audience. They definitely call you to the carpet for honesty. And there's a new crowd of teenagers every year, which is really interesting, because they pass books down to each other. Um, and the schools you know put them on reading lists, and they win young adult reading uh, literature awards. So I love the fact that they're getting kids reading in some way. And, um, you know, I, I would hope that 20 or 30 years from now, well, I certainly hope some of the issues I talk about have been solved. That would be a great endpoint too.
0: <laughs> you set a lot of storylines in New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode <laughs> Island... Right where you live. Yeah. And
1: that's a risk, isn't it? I mean,
0: do people ever come (laughs) to you and say, you know, why did you write about our town like that? Or they might think they recognize (laughs) themselves in a character. Sometimes
1: too closely, as in the case of 19 Minutes. That was a really interesting experience for me because um, the principal at my children's high school decided clearly this book was about her school. Hmm. It actually is physically patterned on the Columbine... School, right? Um, and that came from diagrams that I got from the police department there. And yeah, there are cliques in her school, and in a way, it's a backhanded compliment to say I recognize my school in that. Um, I don't think that was handled as well as it could have been. But, uh, you know, in my mind, if you can recognize your school in 19 minutes, then um, you are an educator. It's that simple. Uh, Every school has issues with bullying, and it's the schools that are willing to be proactive about it that can begin to change um, the climate in the school. I don't actually look at it like spoiling your own backyard. I look at it as if it's a love letter to a community I really love. Mm. I mean, I I feel very fortunate to live up here. I can't imagine a better place to live. And, you know, I'm not a native New Englander. And the thing about native New Englanders is that it takes them a really long time to accept you, you know, right? (laughs) But once they do, you are theirs for life. <laughs> and so I think I've kind of crossed that barrier, and that's my way of saying thanks.
0: Well, the last time I was on the stage, I was speaking to Stephen King, who also sells books in the tens of millions <laughs> like you do talked about being labeled as a writer for the masses and not a literary writer. What do you think of that? I mean, do you resent being lumped into that?
1: Sometimes you do, because there are certainly people that you don't want to share the New York Times list with, you know. Um, But the thing in America is that there's, I'm not naming names, not, you know, not while we're taping. There are some, um, there's a very arbitrary distinction between literary and commercial fiction in this country. Uh, And things that are considered literary are no more highbrow, really, sometimes than some of the things I write, or vice versa. The real difference between literary and commercial fiction is that literary fiction wins prizes. Commercial fiction gets marketing money and a wider print run. Mm -hmm. And I made a really conscious decision to move commercial because I wanted to reach more people. And I figured, well, if I can still slip them a well-written book, so be it. Um, what it means is that I probably will never win a national book award, and I wish I, I could, but that's not going to happen in this country. It's okay, because I'll probably win one overseas somewhere, you know. But, but that's just the way we think in this country, and I know that I get, I get mail every day from people whose lives are changed in some way by issues I've chosen to address. Had I been a literary writer, they may never have found that book.
0: You just reminded me of something that one of the <laughs> one of the notes here. I will never forget where I was when I read the ending of my sister's keeper on the beach in Newcastle crying. <laughs> Why did you allow the movie to end so happy?
1: Well, first of all, I don't know if the movie ended happy, but um here's the thing about movies. When you sell the rights to a film, it's like giving a baby up for adoption, and you're not allowed to call every day and say, Did you feed her breakfast? And sometimes <laughs> Sometimes you find out, you know, that your baby grew up and went to college and had a great life and contributed to the gross national product. And sometimes you find out that your baby grew up with Crack Horse and it's, you know, that's just the way it is. And uh, I had um, a very trying experience with my sister's keeper. I unfortunately had a very talented director who has produced some terrific movies, who promised me that he was not going to change the ending because it was the right one for that story, and um, said, if I do change it, I will tell you myself, and I will tell you why. Why? And I found out that it was changed from a fan who got the script at a casting agency. So I called the director and I said, what's going on? And he didn't want to talk about it. And I went to the set and I said, what's going on? And he didn't want to talk about it and tossed me off the set. And uh, pretty much to this moment, I still don't know why he made that decision. But I do know that when millions of people have read and enjoyed a book and those same millions of people are your target demographic for a movie-going audience, it's not the brightest move to mess with a good thing. I have to <laughs> wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have to try and get to a bunch of
0: questions very, very quickly. People okay. asked about certain things. Yes. I'm going to ask you, if you think of your books as, you know, your
1: little kids or whatever, what was the hardest to research? Uh, the hardest research was probably... Um, Probably change of heart for me, because uh, it was about the death penalty, and although I uh, thought I knew where I stood on the death penalty, going back and forth between talking to guys on death row and then parents of kids who had been murdered was very difficult. In the end, I wound up not changing my opinion on where I stood, but standing by it for different reasons. Favorite book? Of mine, that I wrote, Second Glance. Ah, where... -hmm. where, Most emotionally challenging... Uh, most emotionally challenging was probably Perfect Match because I had kids the same age as the kids I was writing about and that does not always happen. Most fun? Second glance. <laughs> if I were not a
0: writer, I would be? Uh, a pastry chef. Really? I would have guessed a lawyer or something. Well oh, pa- who wants to be a lawyer?
1: <laughs> God. <laughs>
0: Okay, um, we just have a second left, but there are two questions here from fifth and sixth grade teachers who want to know, what advice, wisdom could you provide them about your craft as future writers?
1: As future writers, I think if you know you want to write, uh, and this doesn't matter if you're a fifth grader or a 50-year-old woman or whatever, if you want to write, carve out time for yourself to write every day if you can. Um, it doesn't have to be long. It can be 20 minutes, but make sure that uh, you don't answer the phone or answer your email or answer your mother just write. Um, If you can take a writing workshop course, if you live in New Hampshire you are the luckiest person alive because the New Hampshire Writers Project offers a lot of those courses both to young adults as well as adults um, and kids I believe too. Uh, And those are great resources. You need to take workshop courses. You you learn to give and get criticism and to be your own best editor. And the most important advice is this. When you start writing a story and you decide halfway through that this is truly the biggest load of garbage ever created in all of English literature, you are not allowed to throw it out. The real reason you don't want to finish it is because you're afraid it won't be as good as you wanted it to be. Mm. And you'll never know if you can get to the end unless you do. So finish it and then say to yourself, do I want to fix it? Or do I want to scrap it? But don't give yourself that choice until you reach the end.